I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So the thought of me cooperating never really crossed my mind because, you know, you can cooperate at different levels. Maybe I can give them assets and that will be enough to satisfy them. But how do you turn in someone that you grew up with since you were six years old? And you're going to ruin their lives. And what right do you have to ruin these other people's lives? This whole thing, it's bad enough that some of them are going to get in trouble mainly because I screwed up. But it just amazes me that people think it's okay to throw other people under the car. I mean, they just don't have that right. You know, all these other people, they have families, they have kids. You can't just ruin their lives just because you think it's going to save you. I'm Steve Seidel. This is Wolves Among Us, Episode 5, The O'Neills. Everybody that he brought into this would go away and he would live the rest of his life free. That did not sound like justice to us. I said, look, I wear a black fucking hat and I ain't switching up now. Now I find out this gentleman is ex-FBI. How could this be any worse? When criminal defense attorney Tom Bergstrom took on Larry Lavin as a client, he knew exactly what he was getting into, or at least he thought he did. Prior to accepting the job, Larry's former lawyer had briefed Tom on the case, which had transformed from tax crimes into a massive drug conspiracy. After meeting with the U.S. attorneys in Philadelphia, Tom was sufficiently convinced that the government's case against Lavin was unbeatable. FBI agents Chuck Reed and Sid Perry had compiled a mountain of evidence against Larry and his associates, many of whom were eager to cooperate in exchange for leniency. The charges against Larry amounted to a potential life sentence without parole. That being said, Tom believed Larry had certain things going for him. He was a dentist, a contributing member of society, a family man, and had no prior convictions. Tom wanted to play to those strengths and strike the best plea bargain possible. I was feeling that I was going to be able to work something out. It was not going to be easy, and it was not going to be... I mean, if I could get him a 12 or 15-year straight sentence, I'd have told him to jump on it in a minute. I mean, there was no question about that. If we could get seven or eight years in and a tail with probation or parole, it would be parole at that time, of course, then you got to take it. You can't risk it. But I had good feelings about it. I had some confidence that we were going to be able to work this out. My next step would be to get Larry in with his wife at some point and talk to them and tell them what I thought I could work out and get his authority to pursue it. And that was it. That would have been the next step. Tom and Larry were scheduled to appear at the courthouse for a routine hearing. When the hearing commenced, Tom, the prosecutors, and the judge were all ready to discuss the United States versus Larry Lavin. But Larry Lavin was nowhere to be found. 
their reaction is, you better get him in here, otherwise we're going to have a warrant for his arrest. That's exactly what they said. That's all they said. And I said, I'll do my best, and I left. And, you know, the next thing I know, they're calling me, and I said, I don't know where he is. I really felt badly. I really felt like, you know, I probably shouldn't feel this way, but I felt, I took it very personally. And I worked pretty hard to try to make this thing work, you know, to try to salvage his life, and here he just walked out. So I was angry. I was hurt, and I was sort of in disbelief. I thought, you know, he posted $150,000 in bail. The judge let him out on bail. The system trusted him. I was working with the government to try to resolve the case in such a fashion that he wouldn't spend the rest of his 30s and early 40s in prison, and he turns his back on all of us. It quickly became clear that Larry's absence at the hearing was not a scheduling error. Tom had been trying to reach him for at least 24 hours. He'd hoped that Larry was occupied with other things. But now he knew that Larry was not interested in exhausting all legal avenues. Larry was gone, and he'd been planning his escape for months. You gotta understand too that I'm the bad guy in every one of these stories. I'm the guy that they're pointing as the kingpin. So all the lawyers are saying, you know, something may happen for my client, but you're fucked. You're going to jail for a long time, possibly life. You know, so we filed a bunch of motions. And once you realize they're being turned down, you know, it's just a matter of time till you're not going to have a chance. And where are you going to end up? All you can picture is you're going to end up in a cage. And I can't help but think I've got a wife and a kid and I've got to somehow make their life right. You know, what am I going to do for them? Larry determined that there was only one acceptable choice for him and his family, run. He considered a lot of different places, Ireland, the Bahamas, Denver, Hawaii, even nearby states like Virginia. I had previously gone on a vacation where I looked at places like Charlottesville, and I read a lot of magazines about the best places to live. But the more I look at Virginia Beach, I realized this is a city with amazing turnover of people. Because of the military, the average, uh, turns out it's about three years that people, the longest they've lived there, and then they move on. So I realized this isn't like an old neighborhood in Philadelphia that people live in for generations. I could drop in and it wouldn't be unexpected to have someone move in that doesn't really have roots in the community. Mailboxes for fake names and do investments and things like that. So Virginia Beach seemed perfect. I also thought that the government would never think I would go on the run and stay so close to Philadelphia. It's kind of like I was hiding right under their noses. Larry had zeroed in on the perfect spot for a family on the run, Virginia Beach, a six hour drive from Philadelphia. So with that destination in mind, Larry continued planning. He just came to me and said he needed a birth certificate, I think, and a few other pieces of ID in order to require social security and, and other thing like that. He came up with that brilliant idea, you know, he would find people that were dead, that died at a young age. And at that time they didn't report it to social security or something. And he would get that person's ID made and he would open accounts in their names, I guess. That's the way he explained to me. The only thing I did was help him with birth certificates and stuff like that. It was only done one or twice. But, uh, you know, Larry figured all that stuff out on his own. I bought every book you could on, you know, fake ID in America from these, what used to be considered underground publications. So I worked my way up with calling the IRS to the second in charge of the whole agency. And I tell him I'm Robert Ludlum. 
If you don't recognize that name, you'd recognize his work. Robert Ludlum is the author of The Bourne Identity and the rest of the original Bourne trilogy. Robert Ludlum at the time had a whole bunch of number one books. They were great spy thrillers. And he says, my wife is your best fan. She just loves your books. And he said, well, she's going to get notation in this book. We're going to make sure we put her in the front of it. But here's my question. We have these terrorists, and they've come to the U.S., and our hero has figured out they're using these baptismals and birth certificates to get fake IDs. And I need to know if through your computers, am I valid in saying if you had the name of the city in the church that these are from, that you'd be able to spit out everyone that just got a social security number using those credentials. And he thinks about it for a minute and says, certainly not. I just feel great. He says, the idea is the clerk looks at those and just checks that the credentials were appropriate. They're not going to record the actual birth certificate, where it was from, or anything like that. So I'm feeling much better. I thanked him and guaranteed him that his wife would get a signed copy of the book and mail it to his office. And that was the end of that conversation. As Larry absorbed anything and everything he'd need to know for an attempted escape, he didn't overlook the need for cold, hard cash. So he arranged a meeting with Billy South Philly, one of the very few people Larry clued in on his plans. Yeah, fucking Larry, right? So the indictments come down. He asks me for money. I go down to Lenox City. He's in the room. I don't know what I bring him. I thought I brought him the nickel. He tells me I only gave him 300 but I bring him the money. I believe what he says. And while we're in there, we're saying our goodbyes. It was sad. And I'm like, why well, you got to leave? You'll be all right. Forget about it. It's going to be all right. And we hugged each other. And, you know, he said, it's going to be all right again. And, you know, I thanked him. And, and I just didn't believe that I would never see him again. And I roll out. With the exception of Billy, Larry had played his cards very close to the vest but he knew he'd be leaving behind a dental practice and his employees' jobs would be hanging in the balance. So he gave his dental assistant, Beth, a heads up that she might be without a job in the near future due to, quote, circumstances outside of his control. When I was home pregnant, he did stop by my house and he did tell me that he may be having to leave town at some point. He did not tell me why. He just wanted me to know that in case things happened and he would have to leave and I would be then without a job. And so he was actually thoughtful enough in a strange way to do that for me. But as Larry tied up loose ends and prepared for his departure, FBI agents Chuck Reed and Sid Perry were actively concerned that Larry was going to flee. What Chuck and Sid told me was that Chuck had felt deep inside that Lavin would run. He believed that Lavin was a large risk to abscond. This is Tina Gabrielli, the assistant U.S. attorney who was assigned to prosecute Larry's entire criminal conspiracy. She worked closely with Chuck and Sid during the investigation and remembers Chuck's premonition. He believed this because of everything the evidence had shown about Larry Lavin. That Lavin was a thrill seeker, that he felt he was above the law, that at every turn in his life from the time he was a teenager, even before he went to Philip Exeter, when he would get caught, he would somehow make it all right. And so Chuck was convinced that he was going to run. During the course of their investigation, they also developed other tips that he might run. 
The tip that Larry would run came from a cooperating witness, and it came with a caveat. The informant said that Larry would run as a last resort only after exhausting all legal avenues. Based on that information, Chuck and Sid felt that they had some time. So, before setting up the stakeout on Larry's house, they quietly left town to conduct a secret operation against a supplier in South Florida. Chuck and Sid were off in Florida on another cooperating witness in this case who was setting up the Colombians for a major uh, drug trafficking transaction down there. What they didn't realize is that their secret plan was not so secret. The cooperating defendant that was given the FBI tips was Franny Burns, the same guy who inherited Larry's business. And Larry was still communicating with Franny. Billy Motto was smart enough to have the courtroom watched, and he realizes that Fran Burns and his lawyer stayed there for a long time. It's the first indication that we know that Fran is cooperating. So we start making a series of meetings, at which time that I'll check him with an electronic device, pretty much strip him down, make sure he's not recording anything. After a number of these meetings, he says to me, you know, I told them that you're going to go on the run. I said, you motherfucker, why would you do that? You know, and he says, well, I also told them that you think you're so smart that you're going to press with every legal argument there is to try to fight this thing. And once you realize that that can't be successful, that's when you're going to take off. So I've kind of bought you some time there. Before parting ways, Franny told him something else. He told Larry the FBI was gracious enough to let him go to Disney with his kids one last time. Larry knew that was bullshit. He's actually setting up his Colombians, and they go down and bust, I think it's 86 kilos in this buy. Down, rather than go to Disney, he's really doing that. So the FBI is busy with that. Is this my opportunity? Chuck and Sid's trip to South Florida was a triumph. Franny Burns had successfully led them to a major cocaine supplier. When they returned to Philadelphia, they immediately shifted their attention to Larry. As soon as they got back from that drug transaction, they started staking out Larry's beautiful residence in Devon, Pennsylvania. And they saw people moving things out of the house. So they thought maybe they were on time. Unfortunately, they weren't. Larry had already run. And it was other people coming in and taking some of the things that Larry told them they could have. So on October 29, 1984, as Chuck Reed and Sid Perry sat outside in the cold, surveilling the Lavin estate, Larry and his family were long gone. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.
I've been putting away foot lockers. So I probably had 30 foot lockers that had materials in it that we want to keep. Every day I would put one of these in the trunk of my BMW and I would drive to the storage location that I acquired that sat up on top of a large hill. I would go up on that hill and watch to make sure no one was following me before I went in there. And I went in there and put in this foot locker. When it's time to run, my brother gets a U-Haul for me and I go and fill this thing up and I have my wife and kids and the pets brought to that site. We jump in the vehicle and take off. So imagine we've got a cat, a dog, we've got birds and uh, my son. And at some point, a state trooper pulls up next to me and he's motioning. I don't quite know what's going on and I really think this is it. He finally turns on his lights and I'm telling my wife, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm not sure how they knew about this. And I pull over and he pulls up real quickly and says, hey, turn on your headlights and sped off after that. <laughs> Talk about a moment. You just couldn't believe what that feeling is in your heart. Early in the morning on Saturday, October 27, 1984, Larry and his family drove from Devon to Virginia Beach to begin a new life, a life in hiding. Larry and his wife were hopeful that they could create a somewhat normal life for their two-year-old son, but things were bound to be different. First of all, they were no longer the Lavins. They would become the O'Neills. Larry took the name of one of his patients, Brian O'Neill, and his wife became Susan. Larry had already rented a comfortable house for them to live in, telling the realtor he was a professor on sabbatical, and eventually purchased a home in the Little Neck area of Virginia Beach, 10 miles from a naval airbase. He falsified documents and procured countless forms of identification to back up his family's new identity. I started making a lot of plans, you know. I worked on getting all these fake IDs. I would go into these offices and uh, I might dress up with a three-piece suit, a camel hair thing. And I remember one office, I'd go to get some social security numbers for two names. And the person there tells me, you can't do this because uh, they have to be in person. And I said, just get me your boss. And then I said, I went done with you. I got to speak to your boss. And he comes out and I said, sir, I'm a lawyer. It's every American's right to have a social security number. There's nothing in any of these forms that says he has to be in person. He says, you're totally right. You'll have these within six weeks. <laughs> it took him, you know. I go into a bank once and I want to open an account so I can start having checks and whatnot. This is my very first account as Brian O'Neill. And says, do you have a driver license? And I put that, you know, looking down to the floor. I said, you see that car out there? It's, I drive too fast. I've lost my license. Okay. But I had to come down here because we just closed on the house. But I'll have it back shortly. But I do have my social security card. I have my, and I just start laying out IDs, you know, left and right. He says, oh, this will do. The O'Neills were making themselves comfortable in Virginia Beach. In fact, you might say they were a little too comfortable. It was against every fiber in Larry's being to be antisocial. He just couldn't do it. So when his neighbor complained about not being able to get cable, Larry offered a helping hand. When we move into our place, stupid Larry, like the neighbors don't have cable somehow. And 
I knew at those times how to hitch up the cable and the telephone pole, and I already was paying for mine, so I just went up and gave them a loop on mine. And I remember my wife saying, Larry, what are you doing? <laughs> We're living on the run. You can't be doing these things. And then there was another time when Larry went to the dentist and asked for specifics about an amalgam, which is a dental term for filling. It turns out that my wife becomes best friends with his wife. I didn't realize when I went and saw him, he lived down the street. And she actually said, my husband wondered why your, your husband knows about dentistry. And she quickly covered and said, well, you know, he's got one of those uh, photographic memories and his brother's a dentist. And I'm sure he read one of his journals. And she came back, Larry, you just all fucked up there. You know, it's like. Uh... Despite the occasional slip up, Larry was confident that he could successfully disguise himself as Brian O'Neill. The most complicated step, however, was getting a driver's license. He was able to bluff his way through opening a bank account but sooner or later, he'd need a real ID. One thing you need is a license. And at that time, I'm 33. You can't just usually walk in and apply for a license at 33 without drawing some suspicion. Most people have already been licensed and would have some record in a past state. So I decided to say I'm 18. And at the time, I, I looked fairly young. I um, shaved as short as I could, and I put on some tennis shorts some sneakers with no socks, and I went in there and said I was 18, I'm coming to take my driver's test. Well, who walks out to give the test? It's a state trooper from Virginia. <laughs> so we get in the car, and um, I try to act like a nervous 18-year-old and have a little problem with parallel parking and whatnot. But he passes me, and that made my license legit now. You know, I have something issued from the state of Virginia that's a real ID as opposed to any IDs that I had made. At the end of the day, living a double life came naturally to Larry. After all, he'd been doing it for at least a decade. He was comfortable pretending like he was someone he's not, so he didn't act like a fugitive. He befriended neighbors, spent quality time with his family, and developed new hobbies. So life in Virginia Beach is pretty good. I'm like the stay-at-home dad. I'm playing sports with all the young teenagers. We're playing, throwing footballs around and, and shooting hoops and stuff. But I always wanted to have a boat. So I go down to this company and uh, I put down some money and I keep dropping by every few days and put down more money with cashier's checks. And no one seems to think that's very suspicious. And I get this boat and I've hitched up with Lindhaven Dive Center. And I'm meeting a bigger and bigger group of the diving community. And it's kind of strange. A lot of them are firemen and police and military because they're off during the week where everyone else works and you want someone to go out with you. So I'm starting to get certified, and my instructor was Buddy Heller. Well, when I met Brian, he was in shorts and a T-shirt. Uh, nothing fancy. It's beach casual. In Virginia Beach, everything's shorts, T-shirts, you know. Uh, there's nothing flashy about him. Uh, he had a family van, a minivan. This is Walt Buddy Heller. Buddy was a federal fire officer at the nearby Naval Air Station and a scuba instructor on the side. My first encounter is uh, on the boat. I was diving. I was in the water. And uh, he was on the boat with the salesman for the boat that he was looking at. And uh, we just had a, a brief conversation at that time. And I explained my schedule to him. And he appeared to be very open. He seemed to be a really nice guy. But one thing I always noticed about him, that he was treated everybody the same. I mean, he, you know, it didn't matter if you were a millionaire businessman that was in the class or, you know, 
some kid is just right. He, he talked to the kids the same way he talked to adults. And it was one of the unique things about him that, yeah, I always appreciated of how he was able to carry on a conversation in the same way with everybody. You know, he didn't adjust for who he was talking to. He even carried on a conversation with a fellow scuba trainee who was a sergeant with the Portsmouth Police Department. In fact, the cop and Larry became friends and became regular diving partners. Normally, if it was a Brian would you know, call and say, hey, you going diving today? I said, I don't know. You know what's your plan? He said, I want to go out to the Morgan or I want to go out to this shipwreck somewhere off the coast. And uh, Brian was always just a generous guy. He, you know, he, <laughs> he had the boat and you know, all of us just had experience. Yeah, we could rent some gear from the shop or borrow some gear from the shop if we needed gear to go diving. But, you know, it was always his boat. He paid for the fuel, never asked for anything. You know, we bought a lot of the liquor, you know, we'd buy the liquor for the crews back and he paid for the fuel going out. While Larry was fishing and exploring shipwrecks off the southern coast of Virginia, FBI agents Chuck Reed and Sid Perry were up in Philly grinding away on the yuppie conspiracy. Six months had passed, and they were no closer to finding him than the day he disappeared. Short on leads, Chuck and Sid tried to get inside Larry's mind. Chuck Reed learned from a tape call that Larry had purchased a book called American ID. So Chuck devoured that book to gain some insight. Chuck and Sid even asked for the help of Carol Celine, who's covering the story for Philadelphia Magazine. When I was writing the article for Philadelphia Magazine, they actually asked me to write at the end of the article that they thought he had fled to Europe and were no longer looking for him, just in case he happened to find out about the article from someone, that this would throw him off thinking that they were trailing him. It was very important to the FBI that Larry not find out that they were looking for him. So first of all, they made the decision not to go to his family and try to get them involved because that's where he would most likely be having contact. The FBI was deliberately trying to make Larry feel comfortable wherever he was hiding. But to be frank, Larry didn't need any encouragement. He was living 10 miles from a naval air base, installing illegal cable for neighbors, and scuba diving with police officers. He was even offering tips on the stock market. Brian talked to people a lot about good investments. He was following the stock market pretty close. And uh, his wife answered the doorbell, and there's this Portsmouth police officer standing there in full uniform. Uh, she shows him up to the office where yeah, Brian was at the time. But yeah, there were three FBI agents that lived in his neighborhood. And he was on a cleanup committee with one of them to clean up the, one of the entrances. You know, he'd go to the community affairs. He knew these guys were FBI agents. But he just kept himself out about just who he was. People liked him. You know, everybody that met the guy liked him because of the way he treated people just generally, kindly, politely, and all the same. One of those FBI agents was a guy named Pat O'Donnell who was actually retired and living out his golden years in Virginia Beach. So interestingly, I come into my marina one day, and Pat walks up to me and says, I heard you found the Carahuga. The Carahuga was a training vessel the Coast Guard used, and somewhere off of Washington, D.C., it went down and killed everyone on board. And 
I said, yeah, I found it. He said, any chance I can go out there with you sometime? I said, yeah, I'm going tomorrow. You want to go? And uh, so he gets on my boat. Now I find out that this gentleman is ex-FBI. He used to be head of Russian surveillance. And when it really confirmed this is when he invites me over his house afterwards and I walk in and there's all these awards to him from Hoover. And I'm there, what the fuck are you doing now, Larry? <laughs> you know? It's like, how could this be any worse? But he had a boat and we would alternate going out with our friends and we had a really tight group. Larry and Pat became regular deep sea fishing buddies. They'd motor in the deep water, fish, drink, and swap stories. In fact, they became so close that Pat began confiding in Larry. And one time we're coming back, Pat tells me his story. Everyone's kind of drunk afterwards and he and I are up front and he's telling me, he says, I gotta tell you something, I haven't told any of my friends this. He says, when I first came down here, my dream was to own a boat and go out fishing a lot. And my wife and I go out on the boat, we make love, we spend the night in the boat and I come back and drop her off and I have to go to work. And I get a call that I have to come back, there's a problem. And I come back, it turns out my wife has shot herself in the head in the shower and is now dead. He says, I feel like such an idiot that I didn't see the signs she was depressed over something. So he's really opening up. So it wasn't like we were just casual relationships. It's really hard to fathom that kind of audacity. And yet, maybe that's always been Larry's secret. Nobody will suspect you if you don't seem suspicious. But Larry's first real challenge would present itself soon enough. He was out fishing when his return trip to the marina did not go as planned. So one day we have a planned trip, which I do, if possible, two, three times a week to go 50 miles offshore. The purpose of that is to reach these wrecks that the government has put out there and they've de-oiled them, degreased them, got rid of all the cargo doors, and they're just great fishing. Fish need material to, they're just not gonna be on the sand. They gotta have structure. Typically there's three to five foot waves because of 15, 20 mile an hour winds. But there's no wind, we go out, we have a great day, get a lot of fish. On the way back, fog has rolled in. And one thing I used to always do is try to get the other people in the boat to drive the boat. Because when I was a kid, some of my richer friends may may have boats, but they always drove. And I wanted to give someone else that chance to do that. So I've got someone else driving the boat and I go down into the cabin and I'm making us, I think some type of like hot chocolate or something, the microwave. And all of a sudden, we hit something. It throws me into a bulkhead, which probably I moved three or four inches just by hitting with that impact. At the same moment, I see one of the people on the boat come flying through the glass door that leads down to the cabin. To be honest, I think we're dead. The friend that Larry let drive the boat had made a critical mistake. He hit a button on the navigation that advanced the waypoint and set the course directly towards the marina. The problem was that in between the boat and the marina was a giant peninsula. The waypoint that was skipped is what brings you around that peninsula, which the guys would have seen if it weren't so foggy. But it was foggy, so they crashed directly into the beach. So I'm a little stunned. I work my way up, stepping on broken glass. I see my friend laying there and I, I step up on the deck 
and I look around and see we're on the beach and the motors are still running. And I remember looking out and I see this guy jogging in place and he's just stunned. He hasn't realized what's happened, but he's just looking at the scene and trying to take it in. And I finally said, shut off the engines, we're here guys, you know. <laughs> Almost immediately, the crash attracted a lot of attention. It's not like they ran ashore on some barrier island. They crashed into the part of the beach on the north end of the city, in line with 83rd Street. So while Larry was trying to keep a low profile in Virginia Beach, he literally crashed his boat into Virginia Beach. Larry sprung into action, trying everything he could to get the boat back into the water. He called his friend who ran a pilot boat. I didn't realize he was drunk and had his two girlfriends with him. And he gets on the boat, and as we finally get it off the beach... He tells them to cut the lines I've put on. That was a big mistake because the props are all bent and the shafts are bent. The boat can't drive by itself anymore. So now we drift back up on the beach at a higher tide. And I basically uh, send everyone home and decide I'm going to sleep on the beach. The next morning, Larry woke up, puzzled as to how he would get his boat off the beach without drawing too much attention. As he considered his options, which were bleak, some unexpected help arrived. Fortunately, a whole wrestling team shows up with their girlfriends and whatnot, and they're gonna hang out on the beach. I tell these guys, I'll give them each a case of beer if they help me get this boat off the beach now. And uh, so can you picture 20 guys bouncing a boat that probably weighs 11,000 pounds, bouncing it inch by inch. I have three boats out in the water tied to the boat. We're trying to pull it out that way. And I have a truck in the front pushing it. And we slowly, slowly get that boat off the uh, beach. Unfortunately, this drew a little bit of attention. And I look up and here comes a helicopter. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this can't be the news. So the news station sends a helicopter out. And next thing I know, there's a helicopter up above filming this. So I put the little hood on top of my dive chute so you couldn't see me. And a reporter comes to talk to me and he wants, and I explained to him, listen, I was kind of playing hooky from work. I can't. I really don't want to say too much about this. The following morning, the Virginian pilot printed a picture of Larry's boat stuck on the beach with Virginia Beach condos visible in the background. The caption read, Brian O'Neill of the Little Neck section of Virginia Beach said his navigation system failed after a trip about 45 miles offshore. But while Larry was interviewed for the article, he was not interviewed for TV news and his picture did not appear in the paper only his boat and a bystander. Larry's boat crash incident did not attract any attention from the local authorities. And needless to say, it never crossed the FBI's radar back in Philly. Chuck Reed and Sid Perry were following every conceivable lead, but to no avail. Tina Gabrielli, however, had been barreling forward with the prosecution of the so-called yuppie conspiracy. The way you prosecute the Larry Lavin criminal conspiracy without Larry Lavin is through the evidence. So if there's a number of defendants involved, you look to see who's the kingpin, who's the head of it. And then you start flipping, meaning talking to folks and explaining to them the evidence that you have against them and asking them to cooperate with the government to lessen their sentence. You start then developing more evidence. So... We charged 30 more defendants in uh, the spring of 1985, six months or so after Larry had fled. And we started working you know, through those individuals to develop cooperators 
Those cooperators then yielded more evidence. One of them brought us the drug records, uh, very meticulous drug records from 1981 and 1982 that outlined, you know, numerous numbers of of clients, what kind of cut they wanted, how did they want the order made up, how many rocks, how much powder, etc. So once you have records like that and you start then approaching other defendants and obtaining more people to cooperate and testify, your case starts to come to life and take shape. The person who furnished the records, an absolute breakthrough for the prosecution, was David Ackerman. Larry's longtime friend and partner, who temporarily took control of the business before being ousted by Larry. David was cooperating like everyone else. Well, almost everyone else. I knew something was coming down. I knew I was going to be under indictment. And when it got really close, I went to see a lawyer. It was a rainy afternoon. It was me and my father and my brother. And we go see this attorney. And, and he says, well, I got bad news. He says, you're the target. I said, what the fuck's that mean? He says, you're the kingpin in this case. Legally, Billy Motto and Larry were in the same boat. Billy had been charged with continued criminal conspiracy, federal statute 848, the kingpin statute. And as someone who had been with Larry since the very beginning, he had a lot of information that the feds wanted. He would make a very valuable cooperating defendant, which gave him some leverage, theoretically. So Billy had to decide if he was willing to give names and information in exchange for a reduced sentence. I remember my father coming to visit me, and, and my father was my life, right? He knew I had problems, but he didn't want to show worry. And he says to me, whatever you decide to do, I want you to know that I'm with you. Like he was actually saying to me, he would never tell me it's okay to be a rat, right? And he wouldn't have been approved to that. But he left that decision to me. So, while gazing up at a mountain of evidence against him, knowing that he was facing a life sentence, Billy Motto refused to cooperate and pleaded not guilty. That's the whole thing about cooperation. Like, they may lead you to believe that, oh, you ain't got to hurt your boy, you know what I mean? Your enemies, they hate you, they were going to kill you anyway. And then you come to the last day and they're like, oh, well, we need him, you know? Fuck that. So once they use you, you think they respect you? Fuck out of here. Fuck them motherfuckers. The United States vs. William Motto began on Monday, October 28th, 1985, exactly a year and one day after Larry skipped town. I went to trial for six weeks. All these guys took the stand on me and told their parts. I can't say every single one of them, but all the ones that knew me, I'll put it that way. Anyone that knew me and dealt with me through Larry took the stand on me. It was a massacre, which was no surprise to anyone, including Billy. The evidence against him was overwhelming, and the testimony given by Billy's former associates was incredibly persuasive. The jury returned with a verdict guilty of conspiracy to distribute cocaine, and guilty of engaging in continuing criminal enterprise. Billy Motto was a convicted drug kingpin. Getting sentenced, you know, wasn't fun, you know what I mean? Like, once again, let me jump back into Larry's thing and my thing. We weren't facing five years. Me and Larry was charged with an 848, which is a kingpin. 
We were facing life without parole. During the trial, Billy never took the stand. His lawyer advised him not to. But now it was time for the sentencing hearing. If Billy was ever going to say something, this was his last chance. So, wearing a perfectly pressed suit and with a crowd of friends and family from South Philly behind him, Billy Motto stood up and spoke. The courtroom was wild, right? It, you know, people were screaming, standing up. I said, look, punish me for what I did, not what I didn't do. And he's like, what do you mean by that? I said, well, if I would have cooperated, I would have got fucking 10 years like our David and everyone else. You know what I mean? I said, I would have went to my mother's funeral. I would have did all these other things that they denied me. And I said, look, I wear a black fucking hat. You know, I ain't switching up now. I ain't hurting my friends. In closing, Billy struck a more introspective tone. He said, I wanted the better things in life that I never had. I sold drugs. I was wrong. My life is shaking. I'm facing a life sentence. My daughter is 11 months old and I've never seen her. I'm a human being. I bleed. I love my family, my father, my mother, and everyone else. God forgave me. I forgive myself. I only hope you can forgive me. Thank you. The court transcript indicates that there was applause. The prosecutors asked for an opportunity to cross-examine Billy, but the judge turned it down, saying, I think this is the end of the hearing. Announcing the verdict in Billy's trial, the Philadelphia Daily News described him as the preferred customer of fugitive cocaine mastermind, Dr. Lawrence Lavin, in effect, a co-investor, end quote. Billy South Philly was sentenced to 20 years in prison. So the next day, they moved me out, and I'm in Delaware County Prison, and I don't get to see a newspaper. I call my father about 7 a.m., and he answers the phone because they don't see you after court. They whisk me out. So my father says, uh, he starts choking up. He says, I'm so fucking proud of you, and he's crying. And I'm like, what's wrong, Dad? What's wrong? And he said, uh... There's a big picture of you in the paper today. So what's it say? He says, Billy Motto gets 20 years, refused to cooperate. I'm so fucking proud of you. When Billy was shipped off to federal prison, Larry was about to celebrate his second Christmas in Virginia Beach. As prosecutors continued locking up Larry's former drug associates... FBI agents Chuck Reed and Sid Perry turned their full attention to Larry, who is now on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. Assistant U.S. Attorney Tina Gabrielli worked closely with Chuck and Sid throughout their search. Chuck and Sid were just constantly looking for Larry. And the fact that he got away and there were, you know, 80 some odd other defendants that was taking the fall for something that he had masterminded and run just did not seem fair. You know, apparently he had read somewhere that, you know, the FBI only looks for fugitives for about six months. I can tell you that's wrong. I've never met a law enforcement agent that doesn't spend the rest of their career looking for the one that got away. And that's what Sid and Chuck did. So what we did is, you know, started piecing together all of the information like a puzzle. None of us were going to give up on catching him. 
because we didn't feel that that would be justice, that everybody that he brought into this and everyone he sold to would go away and he would live the rest of his life free. We were all motivated by justice, and that did not sound like justice to us. As the FBI scrutinized every possible lead that could shed light on Larry's whereabouts, Larry was trying to cultivate a somewhat normal existence for his family. That included communicating with family members. He knew this presented a serious risk since correspondence to any of Larry's family and friends was probably being intercepted. So he developed a very clever mail drop system that would bounce the letters to several locations around the country before arriving at its final destination weeks later. The letters would have a postmark from a different location than the true origin, making them impossible to flag or trace. Larry used mail drops. He sent letters to people that he wanted to maintain contact with. And we used the full arsenal of investigative techniques and court orders to intercept. Eventually, the FBI was able to get authorization to search Larry's mother-in-law's apartment in Devon. They discovered a letter from Larry's wife. First, he sent through one of the letters that we intercepted photos of his children. And in the background was sort of green foliage. And Chuck said, he's in Virginia. I just know it. Next on Wolves Among Us. Sid and Chuck said, you got to be really careful with this guy. You have to get him fast and you have to make no mistakes. Your attention to this matter and any assistance you can provide in the apprehension of a major narcotics dealer is greatly appreciated. I was pissed. I was just like, how could you, after all the shit I did for your son, after you know all the moments we've shared together, how could you do this? Thank you for listening to Wolves Among Us, a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Story created by Cadence 13, along with Matthew Hazara Davis and Steve Seidel. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge of Cadence 13. Co-written by Matthew Hazara Davis, Lloyd Lockridge, and Steve Seidel. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Narrated by me, Steve Seidel. Produced by Ian Mont and Margot Gray. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations, and business affairs by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schupp, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.